Latino Stories, Historias Latinas, es un podcast que nace del proyecto de narrativas orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio, con entrevistas en español, inglés, and Spanglish. Jamie Cambron is a documented artist, activist, entrepreneur, public speaker, born in Michoacán, Mexico, and raised in Atlanta, Georgia. Her murals throughout Atlanta elevate social justice issues through the lenses of immigration narratives. In 2019, the Mexican consulate selected Cambron as the recipient of the Distinguished Mexicans Award in silver medal from the Institute of Mexicans Abroad. In June of 2020, she painted her tallest mural to date, titled We Give Each Other the World a community-responsive mural co-founded by the National Endowment for the Arts in the city of Hapeville. In August of 2020, Cambron painted her most recent mural titled Monuments, Atlanta's Immigrant at Atlanta's Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Bienvenida a este episodio, Jamie. Gracias por invitarme. Estoy muy emocionada de platicar contigo. Jamie, tell us a little bit about yourself. What was it like growing up in Atlanta? Um, well, Elena, the, the part of Atlanta where I grew up uh, is called Buford Highway. Mm-hmm. Um, and Buford Highway is a corridor um, that is considered the multicultural heart of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. So I had this expectation of, you know, as a seven-year-old immigrant kid, of the United States being a place where I would not be able to understand anything and I would feel lost. Mm -hmm. But I was relieved to find that on Buford Highway, there were things that reminded me a little bit of home. There Mm -hmm. were carnicerias, there were panaderias. And so I think uh, that helped me in my transition um, as a new immigrant to to Atlanta, you know, and Mm -hmm. in the South. Um, and my community was largely Latinx. Um, if I, I, you know, I can't say the, it was largely Latinx. Many of the families were immigrant families. And so I never felt left out or like I didn't belong. I actually feel like it was just the opposite. I, myself, and my siblings, we became a part of our community pretty quickly. And as a child, you just kind of learn English really fast because you're in school and mm-hmm. you're a sponge and you soak it all up, or at least uh, I, that was my experience. And so I kind of just grew up just like all of my other classmates mm-hmm. on Buford Highway in Atlanta, and um, and it quickly became home, and I think I didn't start to feel, you know, the marginalization uh, of, of being undocumented until later on when I was um, looking for a job or my mm-hmm. friends had started driving or I was applying for college. And so it was really in those, uh, in those like last three years of high school where I started to kind of feel like I wasn't welcomed Mm -hmm. in this place that had become home for me. Right. So in the community itself, you felt safe, I I assume, and uh, and welcome. 
uh, as an immigrant because it was also a neighborhood, um, you know, with uh, other in, um, immigrants in, in, in that place. Did you? So you mentioned being undocumented. Did you always know you were undocumented growing up? And and if so, when did you know? If you didn't, when did the, did you come up? You know, to know um, the status and what that meant for you. And you did mention, you know, getting a driver's license or finding a job. Mm-hmm. So tell me about this um, sort of coming to know or understand uh, what being undocumented meant for you who had by that time, you know, by, by the time you get to, to think about getting a job or a driver's license, you're into your, you know, later teen years. Uh, so you have grown up in the school system, you know, have grown up as a social citizen of the United States, but then here's this obstacle. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the way through which I, Uh, came to really understand my undocumentedness Mm -hmm. was really uh, was really significant because it was in my in my role as an artist Mm. Um, I entered an art contest and I always tell the story because it really was just such a landmark moment in my life Mm -hmm. Uh, I entered an art contest that was about remembering the victims of the Holocaust. Mm. And it was hosted by the Georgia Commission of the Holocaust. I got third place. I was, uh, the, the third place prize was $50. Mm-hmm. And I was invited to a ceremony at the Georgia Capitol with my, my mom, my little sister, and, my, and my, my teacher, who was my mentor while I was, uh, in in high school all those four years and is still a friend of mine to this day. So I attended with with my people and um, was recognized in front of everyone, given a certificate. So just like this very public official uh, recognition in this uh, government building with its beautiful golden dome. Mm. There, w- there was an exhibition afterwards where people got to enjoy our artwork and at the very end my teacher Ms. Vax asked us to to sit down and wait while she went and got my prize and you know I was like oh my god $50 <laughs> I've really secured the bag now <laughs> no I really I really did feel like it was a lot of money mm-hmm. um, for me and I was so excited when she came back, she came back empty-handed mm-hmm. and told me that they couldn't um, give me my fifty-dollar prize because I didn't have a social security number. Mm. I don't remember saying anything. I think I just kind of accepted it, or maybe I just didn't know how to communicate the. Uh, everything that I was feeling. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it was, I was really, I was really kind of in shock because my worlds were colliding and like they were all being kind of everything I I had been told and everything I believed was being challenged. Mm -hmm. Uh, My teachers had always told me, you know, that I would achieve, that I would do this, I would go to college, I would become this and that. And then you know, I'm publicly recognized, but I'm, I'm getting this message from the government, essentially, that my 
my talent is not uh, deserving of, um, although it was deserving of recognition, that it wasn't deserving of compensation. Mm-hmm. And as an mm-hmm. as a young artist, that really, that was really hard to to experience. And then to at the same time have this realization that because I'm undocumented, I don't have a social security number. And because I don't have a social security number, there are things that I don't qualify for. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that as undocumented people, we have experiences like this where we are kind of in our resilience. We are kind of, uh, we have no other choice really, but to find the beauty and the good in every situation and everything that happens to us. And so this moment for me is, is a moment that I'm, I've learned to be grateful for because it, it really helped me understand what it meant to be undocumented in the South. I always knew that I was undocumented. When we were in Mexico, my dad would tell us, like, nos vamos a ir para el norte, vamos a ser mojados. And, you know, as children, like, we knew that, but we didn't know what it meant. And I don't think our parents did either, really, mm-hmm. um, what it would mean for our future, for our education. And so uh, this moment clarified a lot of those things for me and it opened my eyes and it helped me ask myself important questions such as what else don't I qualify for? Uh, mm-hmm. What does this mean for my, for my dreams of right. going to college? Um, so it really uh, changed things for me in a big way because I suddenly became hyper aware of being undocumented and what that meant in a state like Georgia that goes out of its way session legislative session after legislative session to create uh, obstacles and systems that marginalize us such as the ban on undocumented students from the top public universities in Georgia such as the fact that we have to pay out-of-state tuition to attend any public university despite having been educated uh, in, the, in, in public schools from K through 12 sometimes, uh, for, in my case, from the third grade into, until, until the 12th grade. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it helped me fight even harder, and I knew I couldn't do it alone. I don't know how I knew that, but I did. And I asked my teachers for help, and I told as many of them as I could about what was going on. And I think they, their willingness to let me teach them about being undocumented mm-hmm. is what helped me get their help and their, their support in a way that was culturally responsive. And so they really did two of my teachers and I had, so it was two of my teachers and a mentor. They really helped me navigate this uh, college application process while I was in high school. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And this is, it's just amazing, right, that um, that um, kids right now in our K-12 through schools are facing a similar situation, right? Now, just recently, within the past year, right, year and a half, maybe, maybe more, um, that, um, well, DACA was rescinded during the Trump administration, and then within the last two months, it's oh, again it has it's on hold, right? Mm-hmm. So, right. so um, kids 
uh, or people that qualify that would otherwise qualify to apply for DACA status um, can't cannot, and there's limitations, you know, uh, mm-hmm. associated with that. And um, so, so it just makes me think about the importance of also having caring. Um, educators right in our community mm-hmm. that are also knowledgeable about you know what it what is it like to be an ally for undocumented students and their families um and so it's 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 good to hear that that you did have you know some support in your with your schools and and, and the teachers that you that you had yeah it really made a world of a difference and i think i think one good a good thing that came out of DACA is that it opened the conversations about immigration and undocumented students mm-hmm. in in educational settings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I started, uh, I mean, I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but when I started teaching, mm-hmm. um, I became, I, I, I joined Teach for America in 2015 mm-hmm. after graduating from college. And uh, I was the first of two uh, documented people core members that were placed in Georgia by Teach for America. And I had, because of this um, this network, this national network that Teach for America has, I had the opportunity of meeting documented educators from all over the country. And I just felt so uh, privileged to, to be part of this kind of you know, what I felt was a historic moment because for the first time that I knew of, there were undocumented teachers in the classroom. And now I know there's a there's sort of like I and I also go back and forth about whether we can call ourselves undocumented if we're documented. So mm-hmm. it's just like a weird limbo of like right. I'm documented but I'm still semi undocumented and if DACA goes away, I go back to being fully right, undocumented right. and it's so complex. But but at the time I thought to myself, you know, I'm I'm connecting with educators from all over the country that are undocumented and that are in positions of leadership as educators. Mm-hmm. And that was so beautiful and kind of ironic in a way because to be able to stand in front of my students and say, I'm undocumented and I'm one of your teachers, like that's just if mm-hmm. I had heard that when I was in high school, I would have been so mind blown because it just there wasn't even a way really to legally work before right. there there wasn't a way to work legally before DACA period. Right. And right. so um, and so with these educators, we uh, and and two women who were within Teach for America, Viri uh, Viridiana and Lorena, formerly undocumented badass Latinas uh, that live in Texas, they they guided us and we organized to uh, demand uh, of Teach for America that there be professional development required for incoming core members across the country on supporting undocumented mm-hmm. students and their families mm-hmm. and that and that we should be the ones to lead that professional development because right. you can't have someone that knows that doesn't know what it feels like in their own skin what it's like to be undocumented Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. facilitating professional development about supporting undocumented students and so uh so i i feel like there we're at a better place uh to have those conversations within educational settings i certainly 
pushed it when I was an educator all four years and just tried to have those conversations with anyone that would listen. Right, right. Uh, Jamie, when I think of you, I think of your work as a muralist because that's what I what I've been seeing more, and and I you know I follow you on Instagram, and I I always enjoy seeing all the work that you do, seeing you on those, I don't know what they're called, those high uh, the lifts, yes, the lifts. People <laughs> I call always, them the cherry pickers, right, right, and so up, you know, painting and and with your collaborators as well. But I know you, that you're more than that, and and you just briefly discuss, you know, that you're an activist too, and in, 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 in any area, whether you're an artist or you're an educator, you're always pushing for for change. Uh, but can you talk to us uh, about becoming a painter, uh, in particular a muralist? Mm-hmm. I mean, an artist in in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, uh, well, I have to go back to when I. Uh, was awarded my my scholarship, which was a full ride scholarship to to Agnes Scott College, mm-hmm. which is an all women's liberal arts college in uh, twenty minutes east of Atlanta in Decatur, mm-hmm. Georgia. And I had this opportunity because someone decided to invest in my education. Um, I had this opportunity to spend four years in this dreamlike college. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful campus um, to study whatever I wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was just a no-brainer for me to declare myself a studio art major almost immediately. I did not have to think about it. Um, I had this experience at the Capitol where, you know, I was told that or I, I got the message that my artwork did not deserve compensation But at the same time, I I always felt like, okay, well, this is something that no one can take away from me. Papeles or no papeles, Mm -hmm. I can always be an artist. I don't need um, to have a degree even or a certificate, sorry, or certification Mm -hmm. to, to be an artist. And so it just kind of felt like this was just a grounding force in my life and I had to pursue it. And I would tell my mom, <laughs> you know, because in our community, like, you tell your parents you're going to be an artist, and they're like, ¿Y qué vas a hacer con eso? ¿Y cómo vas a pagar la renta? Sí, y cómo, sí, es como que no, es algo que no tiene, no es como, it's not a traditional path. Right. It's not like the doctor or the lawyer, like that, or the engineer that they kind of, have on their minds, I guess, Mm -hmm. um, because I hear that a lot from immigrant parents. But I, uh, you know, I would just tell my mom, like, I'm going to figure out a way because I really love this. Like, this is what I love doing. So I'm going to find a way to get paid um, (laughs) and to make money. And I have no idea how I was going to do that. But I just would tell her that with such conviction. And so I declared myself an art major. I uh, was, you know, surrounded by amazing professors and and uh, and classmates, and my professors just really saw me. And uh, in particular, I had a my advisor, who was Professor Ann Bivler. She just really 
I felt like she really believed in me and my work. She really, I think at one point she said, you know, your, your work is going to change the world one day. And that just meant so much for me because I was like starting to learn how to, uh, how to communicate my, my story, how to, um, like express it through artwork mm-hmm. for the very first time. I didn't do, I, I was an artist in high school, but my artwork was not about being undocumented at all. And when uh, my professor, like, I think our first assignment was to do like a, it was like a, a book, pro- like an art book project. Mm-hmm. And I, I made that, that very first project was about my story. And I, included the words that I wrote for my scholarship, my scholarship application in which I wrote about my parents' hands and their sacrifices. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, wow, I can actually (laughs) create artwork out of my story, out of my experience. That was very new to me. Mm -hmm. And and artwork sort of became um, almost my therapy. Mm -hmm. I, for the first time, was uh, processing not just, the trauma and the fear and the uncertainty, but also the strength, the resilience, the joy, the, the, um, like the value of family in within my experience as an immigrant. And so it was life changing for me to have affirmation all around me and support from my, not just my professors and my classmates, but also my, my, my college as a whole, my, the, the deans. Mm-hmm. Um, I really just was in a, in a community where I could thrive. And so um, I graduated uh, in 2014 and was kind of lost because I had really wanted to apply for grad school, but uh, a lot of things were happening. And I just kind of like, I I became a DACA recipient while I was a college student. So between my junior, my sophomore and junior year and everything changed because all of a sudden I would be able to work Mm-hmm. And it was like, wow, my degree is not just going to be this degree that I can put up on the wall. Like I can actually put it to use. And I wanted to make sure that I was using it to give back to my community. Mm-hmm. And so I became an educator through Teach for America. I taught elementary school and I was teaching numeracy and phonics. <laughs> and I was just like, what am I doing? You know, I, lo- I love education I'm, I believe that everyone deserves a chance, uh, deserves to have access to a quality education. But even though I was passionate about education, I couldn't, um, I wasn't in a, in a position to, to really be, I think, the teacher that my students needed mm-hmm. to teach them how to read and how to understand numbers. Um, and and that that foundation for like a first grader and a third grader really uh, determines a lot of their future mm-hmm. as a student. And so um, and also while I was teaching elementary school, Trump was elected, and I did not have it. I just was I was depressed. I didn't think that I was depressed at the time, but looking back, I was like, oh my god, I would go to school, teach all day come home, try to grade, try to lesson plan, but I would mostly sleep all the time and wake up the next day and do it all over again. And I just I just knew that my students deserve better. And so I just I decided to transition out of um, 
out of teaching elementary school and I got certified to teach art uh, and I went to teach at the high school from which I graduated. And I also just really, my artist heart wanted to be in a more creative space and I wanted to teach something that I was passionate about. I wanted to help students kind of communicate or process their, their experiences through art in the way that I had because that had become such a healing experience for me. And I, uh, during those two years, that's when I became an artist, an, a painter. I feel like I've always been an artist, but this was when I became a painter. This was be- when I became a muralist. Mm-hmm. Um, an, an organization, uh, a nonprofit organization called Living Walls, The City Speaks, partnered up with uh, like a neighborhood organization called uh, We Love View High. So I, we love Beaufort Highway. And they partnered up to bring public art to my community that I grew up in. This was my first month teaching at Cross Keys High School and my alma mater. And I hear about this project and they announce the artists and I'm kind of like salty, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like I'm like, wow, who are these people? And I'm an artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I just felt really jealous, uh, to be very honest. I felt jealous that I wasn't a part of it. Um, and, you know, and, and I was like, why, why would they bring artists from outside of the community to paint murals about the community? Mm-hmm. Um, but anytime, anytime I'm, I'm salty about anything, I, I try to pause and take my time to learn and do some research, which I did. And the artists were all artists of color and immigrant artists, and half of them were from Atlanta. And so... You know, I was like, wow, I'm just being petty because I'm not a part of it, you know? <laughs> like, this is this is amazing that this is happening in my community, and I just want to be a part of it. And why would they invite me to be an artist if I don't even, I don't even call myself an artist anymore? Like, for while I was teaching elementary school, I was just like, I'm embarrassed to say that I'm an artist because I haven't created anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and... So I decided to participate in the community conversations and at least to lend my voice to the artists that would be coming in. And I showed up to one of the community conversations. I introduced myself for the very first time since I had graduated in 2014. So this was in 2017. So three years later, I finally call myself an artist. I say, hi, I'm Amy Cambrone. I'm the art teacher at the high school that you're partnering with for this project. And I'm an artist. And Monica Campana, the executive director of Living Walls, was sitting there with us at, at that conversation. And after the conversation, she approached me and she's like, oh, my God, you grew up here and you're an artist. So you need to paint one of these murals. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, yes. I, you know, I said yes right away, even though in my mind I was like, how do I paint a mural? I don't know how to paint. I'm not a painter. I always rejected being called a painter. Um, but I kind of became one because for, uh, to paint my first mural, I had to figure out how, and I watched a lot of YouTube videos and winged a lot of it. Um, and that's how I painted my first mural. Um, and it really, I did become a muralist primarily. I wasn't really making anything else. And I think that as my work became known and I participated in projects that had a lot of just like very high profile projects um, nationally and internationally, 
I uh, was able to get people's attention in the art world in Atlanta. And then eventually I was invited to be a part of an exhibition at the High Museum of Art in Atlanta, which is the leading museum in the Southeast. And I was like, why do they want, why do they want me to be in a museum? Like, I just was shocked because in my mind, it was like, okay, you're an artist and then you get gallery representation. And then like, hopefully one day you'll be in a museum. And that's like going pro, you know, like if you're a soccer player, you go pro. Like that's right. what it's like to be in a museum and in and, and a space like the Hyde Museum. I had gone on so many trips to the Hyde Museum as a high school student. And so it's this like very pristine space, beautiful um, architecture with like white, pristine walls. And um, I couldn't imagine uh, bringing, like, I just was, it was a process to figure out what kind of work I would create for the space because my work was on the street. Right. And so uh, that was a really awesome experience, just figuring out how to, how to translate my activism into a space that was not, uh, that I don't really think about as a space for activism, which is, you know, a museum um, that like my parents don't really have access right. to and would even, never visit. Yeah, even a community, right? I, I, I mean, I, it does make you think about what are, what spaces are welcoming to our own community. Um, mm -hmm. And like museums have not necessarily been been that space right, right. Uh, especially if it's like what you, the, the type of museum that you're mentioning although a great opportunity it does make you think about is this something that my parents would come to see is it is this a right. place where they feel welcome mm -hmm. yeah and I and I and I think the answer is still no and that has a lot to do with like our like maybe their discomfort in being in a space like that mm-hmm um because of language barriers and all that um but i will say that 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 the curator michael rooks having this like vision for this exhibition that was primarily about immigration um he, he i feel like he created a space where people did feel welcomed and did feel like, okay, we are being seen, we're being represented. Mm -hmm. And I was able to bring in a lot of undocumented young people. Uh, I, you know, welcomed a group of documented educators. I welcomed uh, students from Freedom University, which is uh, here in Georgia, modern day freedom school for undocumented students to help them um, kind of prepare for college and activism. And uh, so I, w I, I use this space as much as possible to bring in uh, people from my community. And so my artwork has kind of evolved into, um, and I painted two major, major murals last year, major for me, uh, which I feel are now kind of landmark murals in Atlanta. One of them is uh, the tallest mural that I've ever painted. It's near the airport uh, in the city of Hapeville, um, five minutes away from the airport. And then the other one is a mural at the Mercedes Benz stadium. And mm -hmm. so I've painted these, uh, what are to me, massive monumental murals. And now my artwork is transitioning again. And I've gone through sort of like a transformation in the past four months in my, in that, not just in my artwork, but in my business where I'm really, uh, being very 
strict with myself in in that I am only only doing work that comes directly from me from my heart and that and that is work that I hope uh will have a very direct impact on my community, the immigrant community mm -hmm. here in the South. And so I have uh, uh, very exciting projects coming up and I kind of, you know, I had projects that had a lot, that had a lot of funding behind them that I moved towards next, that I moved to next year because I really wanted to focus the next few months on these projects that are close to my heart. And even though there isn't funding for those projects, I'm just going to I'm, I'm going to trust in the value of my work because I see the value in it. Mm -hmm. I see the and, and not not just the monetary value. Right. But also just how how valuable it is for for people like me and my parents um, and my family. And so I'm trusting that as, as I start putting out the work that the money will come in right, um, right. because, you know, I still need to find ways to, as an, as a business owner and an entrepreneur to sustain myself and to, to, to make sure that I'm not in survival mode so that I can continue creating work that, that can make an impact. And so um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm excited to, I'm excited to talk about these projects <laughs> that are yeah. coming. And this work obviously has uh, led into you being named one of the most, the 50 most influential Latinos in Georgia um, for several years now. Tell me what, about what this means, means to you and to, you know, to you as an artist, to you as an entrepreneur and, you know, for your family. Yeah, so I think that awards uh, like this are, they're very exciting. You know, they're definitely like, Um, I think they're a sign that that my work is being widely recognized and embraced and appreciated, um, which which I think for me feels it feels good because I thought that nobody would embrace my work. Um, my first mural was was destroyed by the owners of the of the mm -hmm. wall because it was too yeah. political. And so I just kind of braced myself that anything I would create would just bring this sort of like reaction of, oh, no, we can't talk about this. It's too political or, <laughs> you know, it's too divisive and it's this and that. And for me, it's like, well, I don't have the privilege of remaining neutral in this situation. I need to advocate for the humanity and the dignity of my of of immigrants and of undocumented people specifically. And so I've kind of tried to be uh, very unapologetic with my work and my message. And so I, I, I didn't really know how, uh, how that was going to be received. And so I think being named uh, 50, one of the 50 most influential Latinos in Georgia for three years in a row um, is just kind of like, Um, it, it, it shows me that, that it, my work is being embraced and that it is important for the Latinx community in Georgia. Um, but I, I do want to see um, other artists that are doing important work being recognized. Um, I think that sometimes awards 
like this can can be very political and <laughs> and while they make you know I I I love it because I love receiving them because then I get to bring them home to my parents mm. and that really is the most exciting part right like giving my parents the award and like telling them you know this is for you or like I I brought you something like that is really the what what has become the most exciting part for me of receiving any sort of recognition mm-hmm. um it's been telling my parents especially especially awards that they can kind of understand a little bit more sort of mm-hmm. like this like if i tell my parents i got like a national endowment for the arts grant like it doesn't really mean as much <laughs> as like telling them you know that i i was named one of the 50 most influential latinos in georgia and so um i now feel though that um that i i want to push the limits a little bit more with my work mm-hmm. uh i I've, i've always felt like i've been apologetic with what i'm creating but now um with this transition that i've gone through in the past couple of months i feel like i can i can do more and i need to and I need to do more and I need to use the privilege and the platform that I have to advocate for the more, the people who are, uh, I, I feel weird saying it this way, but like the people who are the most vulnerable in my community, or maybe mm-hmm. not the most vulnerable, but the most targeted in our mm-hmm. community. And mm-hmm. so I, um, I think, you know, I will always do my advocacy for undocumented youth and for DACA recipients. Mm. But DACA recipients, are we're going to be okay because we have such a strong network, such a strong movement across the country. Mm-hmm. And and so I'm kind of turning my, my, my attention uh, and focusing my artwork on people who are in immigration detention. Mm-hmm. Right. And so and so then I don't know, you know, how the work that I create about this, which is, I think, um, calling it's calling for the abolish for the abolishing of eyes and the mm-hmm. uh, and the shutting down of these detention centers. Right. Like, I don't know how that's going to be received, but I know in my heart that it's exactly what I should be doing in these moments. Mm-hmm. And that um, and that I think my artwork can be sort of a vehicle for. Uh, shining a light and, and elevating what is happening to to our community in these spaces, which is horrific. Right, right. So that's why, um, um, you know, the work that you do as an artist and an activist makes you an artivist, right? I mean, uh, <laughs> everything you do, the, 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 um, the way that you go about painting or even the work that you're now moving into, Um, and, and, and bringing maybe more awareness and, and pushing for action to, you know, to abolish eyes or um, this, this attention centers, which is really leads to so many, you know, injustices, especially when it comes to family, young kids being in this, in this um, facilities and sometimes, as we know, separated. So tell me about this work. Uh, what's next for you? What projects are you working on right now um, that we should be following and, and supporting? So I have, uh, at the end of this month, I will begin installing uh, a piece at uh, the Alana Contemporary Art Center. Uh, 
And this piece is uh, a reflection of um, Stuart Detention Center, which is uh, one of the largest and deadliest um, detention centers in the country. Mm. Uh, And it is, so let me back up. I will be creating um, 1,752 monarch butterflies Mm. to overpower this very small confining space within the art center called the sliver space. The exhibition is going to be called, uh, sorry, the installation is going to be titled Chinga La Migra. Mm -hmm. It's going to be hashtag Chinga La Migra. Mm -hmm. Um, And I really want the viewer uh, to to feel invited to to pause and enter this uh, really tiny space Mm -hmm. to hear the voices of those who have been harmed Mm -hmm. by Georgia Store Detention Center, which is, as I mentioned, one of the largest and deadliest immigration centers detention centers in the country. Um, Store Detention Center is operated by CoreCivic, which is a private prison company um, in contract with ICE, with U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, mm-hmm. and has the capacity to cage 1,752 people, which is why I'm creating 1,752 monarch butterflies for the space. Mm-hmm. Uh, unlike the bright orange and yellow monarch butterflies in my murals, uh, the butterflies uh, that will be in Chingala Migra mm-hmm. are going to be more as if in, as if in shadow. Mm. So I'm going to individually watercolor each of them in sepia and like warm gray tones. And uh, they're all going to be cut out by hand to reflect just like the complexity and the full humanity of each person right. who has survived store detention center or continues to resist from within. And then one uh, very, uh, I think, Oh, I think all of it is heartbreaking, but I think a part that I hope really uh, stands out to people are the black butterflies that will be a part of the exi- of the installation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the black butterflies will represent the lives that were lost mm. uh, within the confines of this horrific facility. Um, and then, you know, the butterflies are going to be, there's so many. They're going to be tightly packed, um, and I'm saying they're going to be because I haven't. I'm I'm going to start installing this at the end of the month, but mm. they're going to be tightly packed in the sliver space um, to kind of personify immigration detention and just like this feeling of being confined and trapped. But I think uh, the biggest takeaway that I want the, the viewer to have is that the, the, the butterflies, the monarchs, can be experienced as a unified larger force and that there's this collective power of strength and incredible resilience. Mm. And I want, and I think that the stories that people will hear when they enter this space will, will also help communicate that, um, that strength and that resilience. I, um, I'm very, I'm hyper aware that I have never experienced immigration detention on my own skin. Mm. I, I don't know what it feels like to be to have my freedom taken away in that way. Uh, and I've never had to directly deal with ice either. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I, 
I know that this is an experience that I'm creating artwork about that I really have not, like, I don't have firsthand experience. Um, although as an undocumented person, um, you know, dealing with ICE and being detained has always been kind of a fear and, um, and the nature of many of my nightmares, <laughs> literally. Right. Um, and so personally, I feel like I'm kind of uh, facing these, uh, these monsters from my, from my nightmares, but, but also I know that I need to do a lot of learning and listening to understand the experience and to be able to create a space that helps people communicate what they've gone through. And so I've been just kind of diving into, um, into the work. And I always try to, to implement a community responsive process. And usually that means like sitting down and having conversations mm -hmm. with people but this is a very different, the nature of this project is very different. And so I have been able to communicate with one person who is uh, in at Stewart Detention Center. And I've had a few conversations with him about his experience. Um, and he's, uh, I just refuses to, to release him, even though he has uh, medical conditions. And so I hope that my work can help get him released. But I, I'm treading very carefully, like I'm not even really talking about his story because I I don't want to do anything that will harm him and that will bring him punishment within the detention center because that means isolation. And for people who have mental health, um, who, who uh, suffer uh, from mental health issues or who have medical conditions like that, being placed in confinement and segregation is, is deadly, right? We've seen people die for that reason. Um, and so I'm being very, uh, I'm trying to be very sensitive of, of that and just like having conversations with, with their attorneys so that I'm not, uh, I'm not overstepping. And then mm -hmm. another part of, of the uh, process for me has been just being there and, and receiving people, uh, volunteering to, to help receive people when they're released from immigration detention. And in doing so, you know, I'm also kind of asking myself, well, what else can I do aside from my artwork? The projects will come, they'll fall into place. Like, what can I do in this moment? Um, how can I activate my platform to, to make sure that the needs of people who are being released are met? And mm -hmm. so that has looked like calling for donations on Instagram, which I rate, I, oh my goodness, I'm, I raised, uh, I think now it's, six thousand dollars but within 24 hours i raised over four thousand mm. dollars to to support people who are being released and that to me was a huge testament to the fact that people want to help that right. people want like people want to talk about about this or like are you know are are craving a space through which they can kind of express what happened to them or at least that has been the case with the people that will be a part of my projects Mm -hmm. That's what they communicated. Um, but yeah, I, again, I think for me, it's like, if I want to make a direct impact, it's not just the artwork. It's also like, all right, people who are being released should have, like, we need to give them cash. We need to give them at least $20 for their travel mm -hmm. uh, so mm -hmm. that they can buy whatever they need because they know what their needs are best. Mm -hmm. And um, there are, you know, of course, uh, amazing organizations that have been doing this work for years. And I'm only just coming into the, to the, 
picture and partnering with them and, and volunteering with them. But, you know, I, I kind of have picked up on, on what like people need. And, and so, you know, the money that I raised, I can use it to buy people a warm meal, mm-hmm. which um, is really, uh, most people get really excited about that, you know, mm-hmm. um, after months of mm-hmm. yeah. uh, having to eat what the, what they call food at the store detention center. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just uh, making sure that they have travel plans. A lot of the people who are um, being brought into store detention center currently don't even live in Georgia. They don't even live in the South or they're not, you know, they're being detained at the border mm-hmm. after they cross. And then they're being, um, and then they're being transported to, to detention centers in Louisiana and Georgia and places all over the country. And so then when they're released, there's this like huge travel expense that the families yeah. have to have to finance or have to figure out um, to, to where they're going. And um, there's one story that has really like struck me um, that will be a part of this installation piece at the Atlanta Contemporary of um, uh, an activist from Venezuela who uh, was kidnapped and detained by mm. the regime in Venezuela for, for nine months and was uh, tortured. And um, yeah, I, I'm saying all this because I, I have his permission to share his story now, mm-hmm. um, but uh, you know, he he goes through this uh, journey to across continents to get to the United States seeking asylum for political persecution. And then this country welcomes him with shackles and, det- and more detention. Mm-hmm. And like, so to me, it's just like his story stands out, but really no one, no one should have to go through that. Right. The humanization, especially like people really talk about the, the practice of shackling and mm-hmm. and how... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how dehumanizing right, and right. humiliating that is. Absolutely. So that's not. my next project. There will be uh, another public art project that will be more about immigrants in the South at large, um, but there will be more to come about that later. Right. No, I do like um, what you're doing with, um, you know, bring in with what you're doing with the butterflies and making something more tangible for people that come and and look, you know, and experience that obviously is a is not the real, you know, experience of being on a detention center. But it also it, it's um, it brings it to mind in a different way. Like if we're if people that view this when they come to view it, they're going to be forced to think about that. Right. And what that might be. Mm-hmm. And, so and to I, listen. And to listen. Exactly. And to listen to those stories. So um, so I I'm excited. I need to I'm going to have to take a trip to Georgia. Yes, <laughs> definitely come visit yeah. me. Yes. <laughs> so, um, well, thank you so much, uh, Jamie, for this conversation. Ansiosos de ver lo que sigue y, y todo tu trabajo y, y, um, y, y apoyarte, ¿no? En, en, tu, en tu jornada. Uh, pues muchas gracias y me dio tanto gusto uh, hablar con, contigo eh, haber co- podi- podido conectarme con tus estudiantes mm-hmm. en Ohio y eh, pues aquí estoy para lo que se necesite y muchas gracias por ayudarme a compartir mi trabajo y, y mi historia. Gracias a todos. Gracias por escucharnos y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima. Sí.